Chapter Three of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Chapter Three, A Page of Ancient History. Before we can bring happiness to others, we must first be happy ourselves. Nor will happiness abide within us unless we confer it on others. Maeterlinck During the preceding hour or two, Malcolm's face had worn its brightest and most youthful aspect. The society of Cedric had roused him and taken him out of himself. But as he approached the handsome and imposing-looking house where his mother lived, his countenance resumed its normal gravity. To him it had been a house of bondage, and he had never regarded it as a home. His environment from boyhood had not suited him, and though he loved his mother, and gave her, at least outwardly, the obedience and honor that were due to her, there had not been that sympathy between them that one would have expected from an only son to a widowed mother. Malcolm's father had died when he was about six years old, but his infant recollections of him were wonderfully vivid. He remembered waking up one night from some childish dream that had frightened him, to see a kind face bending over him, and to feel warm, strong arms lifting him up. "'Never mind, Sonny, father's with you,' he heard a cheery voice say. "'Daddy's with baby,' he repeated drowsily, as he nestled down in his father's arms. Nice, nice, Daddy! And two hot little hands patted his face. Then a voice in the distance said, You are spoiling him, Rupert. Malcolm ought to be a brave boy and not cry on account of a silly dream. Of course it was his mother who spoke. Even from his infancy, her method of education had been bracing. "'Baby isn't a boy, Muffer,' he had once said, in extenuation of some childish fault. "'Muffer must not punish Baby.' The memories of early childhood are always vague and hazy. But in the distance, among shifting forms and changing prospects, there was always a big, big figure, with kind eyes and strong arms, looming largely in his recollection. If my father had lived, I know we should have been such friends, Malcolm would sigh to himself in his growing youth. And though his mother never suspected it, he often looked at his father's portrait that hung in her dressing-room, until his eyes were full of tears. If father had lived, I shouldn't have been so lonely and out of it all, he would say, as he turned away with a quivering lip. Mrs. Herrick tried to do her duty by the boy, but she was a busy woman and had no leisure to devote to his amusement. The long holidays were more pleasant in anticipation to both mother and son than they proved in reality. In the working hive at twenty-seven Queen's Gate there seemed no place for the restless growing lad. His mother was always shut up in the library where she wrote her endless letters and reports and added up her accounts, and Anna was with her governess. 
Malcolm would be put in Anderson's charge, the steady, reliable butler and factotum, and introduced to all the sights of London. Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's, the Tower and the British Museum, the Zoological Gardens and Madame Tussauds. Sometimes they went to Kew or Richmond Park or took the steamer to Hampton Court. The nearest approach to dissipation was an afternoon spent with the Christie minstrels. Mrs. Herrick would not hear of the theatre. But once, sad to relate, when Anderson was indisposed, and the footman, a rather feeble-minded young man, had been sent with Malcolm to see a panorama that was considered interesting and instructing, Malcolm, by sundry bribes and many blandishments, had seduced his guardian into accompanying him to Drury Lane, where they sat in the pit, side by side, and watched with breathless interest the never-to-be-forgotten pantomime of Jack and the Beanstalk. "'They'll run you in for this, Master Malcolm,' Charles had observed ruefully, as they hurried through the dark streets. "'If I lose my place, it will be all along of you, and it is a good place, too, though Mr. Anderson is a bit down on me.' But strange to say, they escaped scot-free. Mrs. Herrick had not returned from a monster meeting at St. James Hall, and Anderson had retired to bed to nurse his cold. Malcolm confided the whole story of his escapade to Anna, and she had wept with grief and dismay. "'Oh, Molly, how wicked of Charles to take you!' she sobbed. "'I never did think he looked quite good. Mother would be so angry and unhappy if she knew. She says theatres are not good for young people.' "'It is just a crank on Mother's part,' returned Malcolm loudly. His eyes were bright with excitement. "'It was the loveliest thing you ever saw, Anna. The princess was a beauty and no mistake. Even Charles thought so, and he has seen princesses by the score. I am glad I went. The boys won't think me such a duffer when I tell them. Don't shake your head, Anna. You are a girl, and you don't understand how much one has to put up with from the fellows.' They call me the Puritan, and ask if I wear pinafores at home. But I stopped that. And here Malcolm doubled up his fists in a singularly suggestive manner. Malcolm's only sister, a pretty, fair-haired girl, had died of fever when she was eight years old, and for years Mrs. Herrick had felt her loss too deeply to mention her name. If Florence had lived— she once said rather bitterly to her son, she would have been my close companion, and we should have thought alike on all points. But it may be doubted if this maternal dream would ever have been realized. A mere accident had led to the adoption of Anna Sheldon shortly after Florence's death. She was the orphan child of a young artist in whom Mrs. Herrick had interested herself, and when the broken-hearted wife had followed her husband, Mrs. Herrick had taken the lonely child home. The kind action had brought its own reward. Anna's gentleness and sweetness of disposition soon won the affection of her adopted mother. She was submissive by nature, and yielded readily to the opinions and wishes of those she loved. Mrs. Herrick's ideas on the subject of education might be bracing and invigorating, but there was nothing oppressive in her rule. Perhaps she understood girls better than boys, 
for Anna thrived under her system. The old nurse, Mrs. Dawson, who still officiated as Mrs. Herrick's personal attendant, taught her needlework. An excellent governess, who was both judicious and reasonable, presided over the schoolroom and accompanied her in her walks. Nor was she entirely without companions, for she attended dancing and deportment classes with the young daughters of their vicar, a much-esteemed guide, philosopher, and friend to the Herrick family. Until the governess, Miss Greenwood, left them to be married, and Anna grew up to woman's estate, her life was as happy as most girls. The chief events in it were Malcolm's holidays. Anna looked forward to them for months beforehand, and she always cried herself to sleep the day he left. She and her adopted mother were the best of friends. Anna regarded Mrs. Herrick as one of the noblest of women, and her dutiful submission and anxiety to please her benefactress secretly surprised Malcolm. Mrs. Herrick was not a demonstrative woman, but in her own way she was very good to Anna. She encouraged her to call her mother, bought her pretty dresses and ornaments such as girls loved. But there Anna's list of privileges was at an end. It never struck Mrs. Herrick that she had simply no life of her own, that at seventeen or eighteen a girl craves for congenial companionship, pleasant occupation, and a fair amount of amusement. When Anna was liberated from the schoolroom, she would have liked to go to picture galleries, attend concerts, and mix with interesting people. In spite of her shyness and gentleness, she had plenty of mind and character, and Malcolm had already cultivated her artistic tastes. One summer, indeed, they had gone abroad, and Malcolm had been with them, and for two months Anna felt they had been in the anteroom of paradise. The summer we spent in Switzerland and in the Austrian Tyrol were words perpetually on Anna's lips. Poor child, she little guessed, as she built up wonderful castles in the air, that it would be long before she had such a holiday again. It was an evil moment for Anna when she volunteered to learn typewriting that she might help her adopted mother. From that day she became the willing slave bound at the chariot wheels of a good-natured despot. No amount of work tired Mrs. Herrick. She had the strength and vitality of ten women. It never entered her head that a growing girl in her teens was liable to flag and grow weary. And so the pretty pink roses that had bloomed among alpine snows faded out of Anna's cheeks, and the soft brown eyes grew heavy. Anna never complained. If her back ached and her head was hot and throbbing, Mrs. Herrick never knew it, and she was quite indignant when Malcolm spoke to her of Anna's changed looks. She is not strong, and she is doing far too much. Dawson and I both think so. Perhaps he spoke with some degree of bluntness, for Mrs. Herrick responded with unusual irritability. "'I am very much obliged to you and Dawson,' she returned rather sarcastically, "'for your solicitude on Anna's account, but I believe I am still quite equal to the charge of looking after her.' "'Oh, if you take it in that way,' retorted Malcolm in an offended voice. And then Mrs. Herrick resumed her smooth manner. 
She was a good-tempered woman, and seldom indulged in sarcasm. But things had gone wrong that morning, and her young secretary had made several mistakes. Anna had at last been obliged in her own self-defense to own that she had a severe headache. Mrs. Herrick had just sent her to her own room to lie down, and had rung for Dawson to attend her. She was sadly inconvenienced by this untoward accident, and it was at this inauspicious moment that Malcolm lodged his complaint. "'If these headaches continue, I shall ask Dr. Armstrong to look in,' she continued tranquilly. "'Anna's services are most valuable to me. I almost feel lost without her. It was a good day for me when she threw herself into the work. It makes me regret my dear child less, to feel that Anna sympathizes with me so entirely.' And in spite of himself, Malcolm felt a little touched by these words. A few weeks later he spoke to Anna. The girl had not recovered her looks, and Nurse Dawson told him privately that she was losing her appetite and getting thin. But Anna's eyes filled with tears at the first words. "'Oh, hush, dear Malcolm, please,' she said, encircling his wrist with her soft hand. It was a favorite caress with her, and Malcolm used playfully to term it Anna's handcuff, or the Sheldon shackles. In spite of their close intimacy as brother and sister, he had never kissed her, but there was entire confidence between them. Please, please, Malcolm, do not say any more. It was very wrong of Nurse to put these ideas in your head. You know Mother spoke to Dr. Armstrong, and he is giving me a tonic. He says I must go out more, so Mother is trying to spare me all she can. And the headaches are better? Malcolm looked at her quite sternly as he put the question. Yes, I think so. I hope so. Rather hesitatingly, for Anna was absolutely truthful. I still feel rather stupid of an evening, but Mother is so good she lets me go to bed early. She sighed rather heavily. I wish I were stronger, Malcolm. Nurse says I have never been robust. I do so love to help Mother. I always feel as though I can never do enough to show my gratitude to her. What would have become of me when my parents died if she had not brought me here? We were so dreadfully poor and had so few friends. Oh, Malcolm, think of it! And then she whispered in his ear, they would have taken me to the workhouse. There was nothing else. Nonsense! Rubbish! began Malcolm wrathfully, but Anna put her hand upon his lips. No, dear, not nonsense. I am telling you the sober truth. Mother would endorse it. Do you think I do not owe her a life service and love for all her dear care of me? If I am tired, I glory in my fatigue, for it is for my adopted mother and her poor that I am working. And Anna's eyes were very soft and bright. Malcolm, you have no idea how much happier she is now I share her work. I know she never complained of her loneliness. It is not her way to complain. But she has missed Florence so terribly. We talk of her sometimes, mother and I, continued the girl thoughtfully and she tells me what a sweet daughter she would have been, and how we should have been sisters. It is so dear of her never to exclude me, 
even when she is thinking and talking of Florence. If my little girl had lived, she said once, I should have had two daughters. Malcolm had to hold his tongue at last, but he grumbled freely to Nurse Dawson. In her he had a staunch ally. The old woman was devoted to Anna, and by no means sided with her mistress. "'You see, it is just this way, Mr. Malcolm, my dear,' she said to him once. "'The mistress, bless her heart, thinks of nothing but them charitable societies, from morning till night. They are more to her than meat or drink or rest. She is as strong as a horse, and so she is never tired like other folks. Why, my dear, I have known her spend a whole day going from one meeting to another, speechifying and reading reports, and yet when I have gone up to dress her in the evening, she has been as fresh as paint. She is made of cast iron, that's my belief," continued Dawson, who secretly adored her mistress. But cast iron is one thing, and a fragile blossom like Miss Anna is another, as I made bold to tell my mistress the other day. For it stands to reason, ma'am, I said to her, that a young creature like Miss Anna is not seasoned and toughened like a lady of your age, and I never did think much of her constitution. What did my mother say to that, Dawson? Well, dearie, she had a deal to say, for I am free to confess that my mistress is never at a loss for words. She argued with me for pretty nigh half an hour, until she made things look so different that I did not know whether I was on my head or my heels. She would have it that everyone ought to work, old or young, rich or poor, that she loved Miss Anna all the better for so readily offering herself for the work. I should have left her free, she said that, Mr. Malcolm. No one in my house should be compelled or urged to put their hand to the plough, but when she came to me of her own accord I could have wept with joy. Did my mother really say that, Dawson? Ay, Mr. Malcolm, she did. And begging your pardon, dearie, you do not half understand my mistress. She is quiet-spoken and does not show her feelings, but she has a warm heart. I know as well as you do that our poor child is put upon and overworked, but she is the sunshine of my mistress's life. That's what makes things so difficult, for Miss Anna is bent on helping her and will not listen to a word. Malcolm soon found he must hold his peace, and very soon his mind was too much absorbed by his own concerns. After a time he got used to Anna's pale cheeks. She had refused to listen to his advice, and must dray her weird. He had his own battles to fight, and victory was not easily achieved. Nevertheless, his masculine will prevailed. It was no hastily considered resolution that determined Malcolm to leave his mother's roof and set up in chambers of his own. Neither did he effect his purpose without a good deal of pain. But, as he told Cedric, life at twenty-seven Queen's Gate was becoming impossible to him. But it was one of the worst moments of his life when he announced his intention to his mother. She listened to his embarrassed explanation silently, and without offering any interruption. But her pleasant, strong-featured face grew set and stern, and when he had finished she looked at him almost solemnly. 
he was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, she said slowly and sadly, and no word of reproach could have stung him more deeply. It made him angry. Mother, you have no right to say that, and to speak as though I were failing in my duty towards you, he returned indignantly. It is not fair. All my life I have tried to please you, and to carry out your wishes. I am not complaining of you, Malcolm, she replied quietly. Your own conscience is accusing you, not your mother. Would you have me suppress the truth, or tell you a lie? Do you think any mother could listen unmoved to what you have told me just now? That you intend to leave my roof? That my only son finds his home so uncongenial, and his life here so irksome, that he is forced to quit it? Mother, you are making things worse and worse, returned Malcolm passionately. You are putting matters in a wrong light. Will you listen to me a moment? Have I ever refused to listen to you, my son? And a softer and more motherly expression came into the grey eyes. No, you have always been kind, he replied, but there was a slight quiver in his voice. Mother, it is not my fault, at least I hope not, that we think so differently on most subjects. I am nearly eight and twenty, and at that age a man is bound to do the best for himself. I hoped you would have married before this, Malcolm. There is no question of marrying at present, he returned in a constrained voice. I have not yet seen the woman whom I wish to make my wife. Then a singular expression crossed Mrs. Herrick's face. I am sorry to hear that, Malcolm. I would have willingly given you up to a wife, but life in chambers seems to me so bohemian. It is only an idea, he returned impatiently. Mother dear, try to believe that I am doing it for the best, for both our sakes. I am not leaving you alone. You have Anna, and in spite of all your kindness to me, I am well aware that I have never been any real help or comfort. If I thought you needed me, that you relied on me for assistance or protection, I would never have carved out this independent life. It is the spirit of the age, she returned a little bitterly. It is the children who make terms, and the parents who have to yield and submit. That is an old argument, mother, replied Malcolm wearily. How often have we gone over that ground, you and I? When our wills have clashed, it seems to me the concessions have all been on my side. How many men of my age do you suppose would have yielded to you in the matter of a latch-key? Poor old Anderson has been the chief sufferer, and the victim of your strictness. Do you think it has not troubled me to keep him up night after night? Anderson is my servant, and has to do his duty, replied Mrs. Herrick rather stiffly. And he has done it, was Malcolm's answer. He has been perfectly conscientious. If he grumbled a bit now and then, no one could wonder at his age. Mother, it is no good talking. It is not only the question of the latch-key. I want to have a place where I can be free to lead my own life and see my own friends. There is no room for them here. Your busy life is too much crowded up with work to have leisure for society. 
I have never refused to entertain your friends, Malcolm. And a dull red flush crossed the mother's face, as though this reproach had gone home. Possibly not, rather coldly. I do not think I have ever asked you. But, mother, let us make an end of this. The first break will be painful to all of us, but we shall soon shake down, and then you and Anna will own that it was for the best. When you want me, I shall always be at your service. I shall see you every few days. Cheney Walk and Queensgate are not very far apart. As soon as I am settled, you and Anna must come and have tea with me, and I must introduce you to the Castons. Now, mother dear, say something comforting to a fellow. And then Mrs. Herrick smiled faintly. She loved her son far too well to hurt him by her reproaches. In her secret heart she strongly disapproved of the step he was taking, but she was a sensible woman, and knew that it was no good crying over spilt milk. At eight and twenty a man may refuse with some show of reason to be attached to his mother's leading-strings, and may also be permitted to strike out new paths for himself. Nevertheless, for many a long day, Mrs. Herrick carried a heavy heart, and only her adopted daughter guessed how sorely Malcolm was missed by his mother. End of chapter 3